knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Have you ever had fly box envy? Flybox Envy. So you're on social media and you're looking at pictures of people's gear because we've seen lots of pictures of fish and fish all pretty much look the same, but there's a great amount of diversity in the equipment that people use. And one of the most exciting things, because there's diversity within the types of fly boxes, there's also diversity within what people put in fly boxes, is fly boxes. So there's these pictures of, of, of very carefully crafted scenes where somebody is standing on a riverbank. They have their fly rod tucked underneath their armpit. They're looking down pensively as the water flows by, but what is the focus of their attention? It's their fly box, splayed open in their hand, everything arranged perfectly. There is an art, there is a beauty, there is all sorts of things going on that make you say, wow, their fly box looks a lot better than my fly box. And it might be, but they also might be a fly box company or a fly company. So there's a certain standard that they have to uphold. So don't feel that bad. However, your fly box might not be suitable for photographing. And that's okay. Mine often get that way also, especially towards the end of the year. This is being recorded in October, and really by the time this point in the season rolls around, things start to get very chaotic. It's kind of like 100 monkeys with 100 typewriters, and you're certainly not going to get Shakespeare. You're going to get chaos and randomness. And that's what your fly box looks as you've pulled things out, put things back, and haven't taken those opportunities throughout the season to reorganize things, which I would encourage you to do. This is a little bit of an aside, kind of before we get back to what we're talking about. But after a trip, as you maybe are airing your fly boxes out, whether you have waterproof fly boxes or you don't have waterproof fly boxes, you should air your fly boxes out because if they are not waterproof, there's moisture in them. If they are waterproof, there's moisture in them and you need to air those out, especially because there's nowhere for the moisture to go in a waterproof fly box, right? Okay, so our fly boxes look nasty. And that's good. We're using them, but take those opportunities throughout the season to sit at the dining room table, listening to some music and enjoying a fine beverage and rearranging your flies. Take the flies that started in four nice, neat little boxes throughout the season and get them out of the seven boxes that are in there now, plus the ones that are on the dash of your car and on your hat band and all over the little patches on your vest and all across all the other accessories of your fly fishing gear and put them back where they're supposed to go. 
Call out the bad flies, the ones that are becoming unwound, and you might say, oh, well, I mean, the fish might eat it because there's a thread coming off of the head that trails down like the entrails unraveling from a bait fish. Okay, you can tie a fly that accomplishes that. You don't have to use the one that's all chewed up. So get rid of the flies you don't need because they're falling apart, and then even the ones that just really good to have in your box. Maybe the hook is starting to rust or something like that. Get rid of them. Because, again, the goal isn't to have your fly box be picture perfect. And what do some of those picture perfect fly boxes look like? Well, um, the ones that I think of first and foremost are the guys with those little microscopic nymphs. They're, you know, they're copper johns or some sort of caddis larva, and they've got a tacky fly box, and every one of those little silicone slits is stuffed with a bright little nymph. The top row is blue, the next row is green, the next row is olive, the next row is orange, and they are just perfectly proportioned, and everything is in a tiny little spot, and everything looks amazing. Okay? That it is aesthetically pleasing. I don't fish that way, so I wouldn't have a box like that. But there's certainly something to be said for it. Or how about somebody who has an old metal clip-style fly box, and every little metal clip has a puffy Catskill-style dry fly clipped into it, and its its hackles are being protected, and its wings are allowed to flow free. Right? Those are amazing, but that's not real life. That's the airbrushed Instagram magazine cover version of fly fishing. If you do that, then you spend an inordinate amount of time keeping your flies and your fly boxes looking good. And if that's your priority, then awesome. But I would say that's probably a very small percentage of those folks who are fly fishing on a regular basis. But that doesn't mean that you have to let things descend into chaos just because you're not keeping things looking like they could go on the front of a fly fishing magazine cover. What's a nice, good approach? Well, like I said before, it's about taking care of the flies that you have. Now, here's where I want to insert a little bit of a wrinkle, because this is something that I've thought about a lot and something that I think would be very, very beneficial to beginners. So when I started fly fishing, I was coming out of conventional fishing. Now, I wasn't really coming out of it. I still do it from time to time. But what happened at that point is I was not even a teenager yet, but into my teenage years, before I started really fly fishing in earnest, I would have my $10 maybe once a month, and I would go to the sporting goods store, and I would buy three lures or two lures. And I would never buy two of the same lure because in my mind, I need to really diversify what's in my fly box, or excuse me, what's in my tackle box. I need to make sure I have all different colors of worms, all different sizes of spinner baits, all different sizes of jerk baits, all sorts of different frogs. And I wanted to have one thing of everything so that every situation and circumstance, I was ready and able to fish and catch a fish in that situation. So I took that mentality over to fly fishing. And when I started buying flies, and even when I started tying flies, I never really wanted more than one or two of a pattern. I wanted a little bit of everything. Even if it was a blueing olive, I didn't want a bunch of 12s. I wanted a 12, a 14, a 16, an 18, a 20. And that way, I had something that I could use in any situation. Now, fast forward to today, and I still do some conventional fishing from time to time. When I'm with my boys, when I'm in a kayak, because I just haven't fly fish out of a kayak enough to enjoy fly fishing out of a kayak, I'll break out spinning gear. And I've gotten to the point where I really only use two lures. And so the Rapala floating minnow in like three and a quarter inches in black and silver, I think it's shad, not the shiny one, 
the one that looks like it's been hand painted. I'll use that 95% of the time. Why? Because it catches fish first and foremost. Secondly, because I can fish it in so many different ways. I can reel it in fast. I could reel it in slow. I can jerk it in. I can go over weed pads if I go a little bit more of a meandering pace, or I can get it down deep if I really crank it. I can fish it up against the shore. I can fish it in open water. And so my preference now is to not have a bazillion different lures in my tackle box. It's to have that floating minnow in maybe three different colors and maybe two different lengths and maybe with a couple of different sizes of bills on it because that's my confidence lure. And I go to it and I catch all fish that I'd want to catch, smallmouth bass and trout and largemouth and big chain pickerel and who knows what else up here in New England on the Rapala floating minnow. So what does that mean for your fly box? Well, especially if you're a new fly fisher, I think my encouragement, and this almost ties back into what I talked about last week with three fly fishing things I wished I would have known back then that I know now, it would be to not get a million different patterns and try to get one of every fly as if you were going through that fly box uh, at the fly shop and just pulling fly for one from every bin, right? That could be helpful, but more often than not, you're going to be okay with a few basic patterns. Seriously, no notes right off the top of my head. Parachute Adams, Hare's Ear Nymph, Blue Wing Olive, Black Woolly Bugger, all right? you're going to be okay in most circumstances. Now, obviously, the size needs to change a little bit here and there. The weight on the uh, nymphs and on the streamers needs to change a little bit here and there. There's other flies that are probably essential in one way or another, um, especially if there's a hatch going on. You might need seven or eight or nine San Juan worms and mop flies if you want any sort of street cred within fly fishing. But you really see that there's not a ton of flies that you need to cover most of the fly fishing situations you're going to encounter. And in fact, this wasn't that uncommon of a thing for people to only carry a few patterns of flies in a lot of sizes and a lot of shapes, because what a lot of folks would do was they would alter their fly patterns. So again, think with me of a very traditional dry fly. Let's call it an Adams. So you've got puffy hackle, two wings, you have the body and you have the tail, normal dry fly. Now, you can fish that traditional Catskill-style dry and be very, very successful. Now, if the naturals change, then what can you do? You can go in with a nice pair of scissors, or if you have a good pair of nippers, this is why having a good pair of nippers matters, go in there and snip off some of that hackle. And now what? If you snip off enough hackle, you just leave a tuft of it that kind of goes around the wings, now you have an emerger because that tail's going to sink down and that body's going to sink down and you can lube up that hackle and the wings with lots of floating and you're fishing an emerger. Is that as ideal as fishing a fly that has been designed to be an emerger, utilizing a hook that is bent so that it helps push that body of that fly and that tail under the surface of the water and only maintains a little bit of the fly sticking up in that surface film? No, it's not going to be as efficient, but if fish are really targeting those, then they're going to be okay. And what have you done? You've Instead of having to have two different fly patterns in your fly box, you have one pattern in your fly box. Now, that might seem like an oversimplification of the matter, and it really is. I mean, there are times and situations and places where you do need a diverse quantity of flies. But I think about some of the sulfur hatches on, on the big eastern rivers that I fish. I fish mostly emergers and duns, and I think sometimes that the fish are taking my waterlogged duns 
as emergers or duns that are floating high as spinners. I don't know. I, I Maybe I don't fish enough, but I feel like I get by with only a few different patterns, and the way I fish them I think is more important than what I'm fishing. And we've heard that before, that presentation trumps pattern. Presentation trumps pattern. There's a lot of people that fish the same fly everywhere they go, but they catch fish no matter where they go because they have confidence in their fly. They know how to fish it, and more importantly, they know how fish respond to that fly in a variety of circumstances, a variety of water conditions and seasons and things like that. So whether you are an experienced angler that might be bogged down by the volume of flies and how many different types of flies and all the flies that are out there, or you're a new angler who's just populating their fly box for the first time, I would seriously consider finding a few dry fly patterns, a few nymph patterns, a few streamer patterns that you not only have confidence in, but that you like using, and maybe even that you can tie. This is huge. I think if you can master a few core patterns, a few dry flies, a few nymphs, a few streamers, and then you can really dial those flies in, and they're flies that you want to use and flies that are successful on the rivers that you usually fish, then you can fill your boxes up with those and then understand, you know what, this one's proportions were a little bit squirrelier, it casted poorly, and the fish weren't responding to it as well. Whereas this one, where I tightened things up, I can really see how it didn't twist my line and the fish responded to it, and maybe it held up better. And so you can understand your fly tying more. But still, even if you're just going and buying these flies from a shop, you have the flies that you know that you like using and that you are successful with, and you never run out. That is an awful thing when you run out of the flies that you want to use. So if your fly box has a row of six parachute atoms in size 12, a row of six parachute atoms in size 14, you know, a row of six weighted hair's ear nymphs in size 14, a row of six unweighted hair's ear nymphs in size 14, and then a row of six woolly buggers in size 8 in black, a row of six woolly buggers in size 8 in white, and then a bunch of mop flies, a bunch of egg patterns, things like that. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying? You're, you're setting yourself up to learn how to fish rather than trying to, and here's the most blasphemous thing that you'll hear in the podcast so far, match the hatch. Because when you know there's a big hatch on, you go to the fly shop or you go to your vice and you tie or buy flies specifically for that. But for the other days out of the month where there's sporadic hit or miss insect activity outside of the water, but obviously lots of things happening under the water, you're going to have the patterns that you like to fish and that you want to fish on hand. And again, you can make those alterations to a fly. It's totally within the realm of things you can do in fly fishing. The game warden's not going to pull you over. Your buddies aren't going to laugh at you. Well, I mean, I'm sure given enough practice, you could do some really ridiculous things to a fly on the water. But that's my encouragement to especially new anglers. Don't feel like you need to have one of everything. Like you pick up the catalog from Cabela's and say, well, I'm just going to hop online and order one of each pattern. Find the flies that either you know work from the times you have gone fishing or that people around you say, these are the patterns you need. Or just go with the 
traditional standard flies, ones like I've mentioned. And depending on where you live, it can be all sorts of different things. I mean, whether you're on a spring creek or a tailwater, you'd be foolish not to have a box full of crest bugs in different sizes with different weights. And what I would even say with this, and you know, this goes back to that uh, fly box with all the little tiny nymphs that are just wire and, and flash, is with crest bugs or sow bugs, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, have some where the the weight is behind the hook eye and have some where the weight is in the middle of the body. Um, I found that in slower water, having that weight in the center of the body, so right at the bend of the hook. So if you're using a crest bug hook or a sow bug hook or whatever you want to call it, you know, having that thing in the right in the middle of that scud, I've used three words to describe three different flies, but are essentially the same kind of critter, um, having it right in the center and allowing that thing to kind of um, wobble back and forth in the flow, uh, I've seen that outperform on slower spring creeks and on the crystal clear tailwaters where the water's not moving super fast. I know that's like you know a little bit of an aside from what we're talking about, but if you do fish a lot of spring creeks and a lot of tailwaters, or you're even in a freestone situation where you have a lot of crustaceans, try tying in, or if your local fly shop sells them, you know where the weight is at the center of the fly. Um, it's killer. It's awesome, and uh, make sure that that dubbing is protruding out the bottom. I would trim mine on the top if I'm not using um, some sort of um, shell or some sort of wrap on the top to kind of smooth it off. Again, this concludes our episode on how to fish and tie crest bugs. Not really. Um, all that to say, we get to something that's important, that your fly box kind of tells a story. All right. I, as I'm talking about these perfect fly boxes, I think one of the coolest looking fly boxes are folks who fish big streamers and big, chunky, nasty flies for pike, for muskie, for bass, and even big trout. And so they have the briefcase style box. And the pictures of those, there's just fur and feathers and rabbit strips and deer hair. And it's just a gnarled, mangled mess of fly all on top of each other. And it's cool because it works. It's cool because their flies are big. I mean, they're big enough that if one were to fall off while you were doing something and it hit the water, it'd make a sound and you would know that you dropped one of your $20 flies. But I think that says that your flies kind of tell a story about you, how you fish, where you fish, the fact that some of those really, really pretty Catskill dries that you have in there with the perfectly proportioned feather wings that are as fresh as the day that you pluck them off the fly shop shelf but all of your humpies are chewed up and mangled, that shows what kind of fishing you do. And it's kind of cool to see that. The, the rows in your fly box that are perfectly organized and everything's lined up straight because those flies haven't moved from whence you bought that fly box versus the rows that are just kind of scattered or even the little patch of fleece on your vest or um, your, your little fly holding device and what's in there. I think it's kind of cool to look at that and it shows you how you fish, what you value, and I would say I would take that data and apply that to how you repopulate your fly boxes before your next trip or before your next season. So any fun fly stories or fly box stories, let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. Again, follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Feel free to shoot me a message through the website, castingacross.com also. And I'd love to hear about your fly idiosyncrasies. This week on Casting Across, two articles. The first one, super pumped about and proud about. I don't brag. I guess I'm not bragging, really. I just, I was so much fun to write. It was called Come Meet Mr. Chesney. And I got an email a couple weeks ago at this point in time 
where um, a man that I'd met a few times through my fly fishing uh, experiences in Pennsylvania had passed away at the age of 90. And so I recount how I knew him before I met him and how he impacted how I fished in a place. It's kind of a cool story. Actually, it is a cool story. Uh, So definitely check that out. Then also I wrote a piece called Mario, Tetris, and a Trout 14 Feet Down. It's about a Game Boy accessory that helps you find fish. You're not going to buy it. You're not going to use it. I'm not advocating in any way, shape, or form you do either of those things. It's just a fun little YouTube video for you to check out. This week's recommendation on the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast is a fly box. Now, there was a time when expensive fly boxes were the thing. I remember when I was working at a fly shop that we had $40, $50, $60 fly boxes, and people wanted them because they wanted their fly box to be expensive, I suppose. And while there is something nice about a pretty maybe handmade fly box, some of the the more heritage brands make some, that's cool. Not knocking that. But I think we've kind of gotten to a place in fly fishing culture where it's almost like what's light, what's going to keep my flies safe, and what can I fit wherever I want to fit it. So a relatively new item for sale. It's not a new concept, but this version of it is awesome. It's the EVA foam box from Risen Fly Fishing. So risenfly.com, the EVA foam box, it's a basically a six by three and a half fly box. So it's pretty small, good for fitting in your vest or your pocket or in your sling pack. And it comes in either chartreuse or gray. And it is a foam box with foam slits. Now I would sing the praises of the chartreuse one because a very bright interior of a fly box is going to be helpful for you to see your flies. Seeing your flies against a gray background is okay, and it'll work, especially if you're using bigger flies. But to be able to have your flies illuminated, really, from the back of a chartreuse fly box, there's something to say for that. But they weigh an ounce and a half each. Um, They float, which is cool, and they are going to be weightless in your uh, bag, whatever you happen to use. In reality, if you have a bunch of weighted flies in this box, your flies will weigh significantly more than the fly box will itself. And at 12 bucks, you can get lots of them, fill them up to the brim, even use only a fraction of the little slots by filling with bigger flies because, again, for 12 bucks, a floating, durable fly box with magnetic closure is awesome. Not waterproof, but again, unless you are constantly getting submerged, Waterproof fly boxes aren't as exciting as they sound. Now, I will say, waterproof fly boxes are good if you use the flies that are in them and then dry them off somewhere else, so on your pack or on your vest or on your hat or whatever, and then you put them back whether they're completely dry. But if you're the kind of person that takes the fly out of the fly box, fishes with it, puts it back in the fly box right after you're done using it, then a waterproof fly box isn't for you. And I have waterproof fly boxes. I just try to do the right thing with them. But you have a box like this, the EVA foam box from Risenfly. You're going to have enough air circulation that will keep your flies totally safe and uh, ready for you to use for a long time. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.